Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. So if you have a Bible, open it up to John's Gospel, chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast, and they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Uh, This past week, I was a part of two different youth summer camps, which was a lot of fun to go and to speak. And one of them, I was asked if I'd come and teach about the Bible and why we trust it. So I was looking through old photos of trips that I'd taken to Israel. And when I would take trips in the past, I was always taking students. And at the end of those trips, I'd come home and I would compile all of their photos, get them from them on thumb drives, and then put them all in a central place so that I could distribute everyone's photos to everyone else. And I was looking for some specific ones to do with specific archaeological artifacts and archaeological dig sites. But what I found instead was a massive amount of selfies on buses and then plates of food inside of hotels, and then signs. Every sign that was at the entrance to another archaeological site, there was a group photo in front of, or a selfie or two beside. All of these signs landed in pictures, with zero pictures, in some cases, of people actually walking past the sign and being inside to see what the sign was pointing them towards. All these photos in front of signs, and yes, some of them very pretty and very ornate, but very few photos of the actual thing that they were signifying and trying to draw your attention to, which for me, I just couldn't help but laugh this week as I was looking through these photos and realizing this irony. To give all the attention to the sign and miss the point and the purpose of the sign is just a silly and a foolish thing. It feels as foolish or quirky, foolish isn't fair because maybe you have it in your closet, But as quirky and cringy as like the Mind the Gap t-shirt from London, or if you've been to Ireland and you spent time in Dublin and you came home with the no fouling shirt that represents the signs that are in their public parks that are signifying to you not to let your dog do his business in the grass and then leave it. They refer to it as fouling. And to walk around with a t-shirt that's celebrating the sign is making more of the sign than really the sign was meant to be. It's just a sign. A sign points to something outside of itself always. That is the purpose of a sign. No matter how beautiful or awe-inspiring it may be, the point of a sign is always to point you to something far more significant outside of itself. 
For us today, we jump into a new series in John's gospel, looking at the seven signs of John. Seven things that John signifies saying, this was a sign that Jesus did amongst the people. Those signs are marvelous, they're impressive, but John's point is that they point beyond themselves. You see, the Gospel of John is unique in several different ways. It's distinct from the other three Gospels in several ways. One of the ways that it's distinct is the date that it was written. John is the oldest of the apostles of Jesus to have died. He lived the longest, and he wrote this towards the end of his life, some speculate, near the close of the first century, whereas the other Gospel writers wrote very quickly after the life of Jesus, much earlier in that first century. John had a lot more time that went by, and he had a different goal in mind. In fact, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are referred to as the synoptic Gospels, which seems like an overwhelming word, but it just means synopsis. It's a general overview of the life of Jesus. John, though, having time probably to have even seen those records of the life of Jesus decades before, he set out not to create a fourth of the same thing. John instead set out with a different goal in mind. He sets out with the goal of targeting specific events that he'll open up in greater detail to tell you about what he was present to see, like the upper room taking up so much more real estate, Jesus' discourse, his teaching in the upper room, taking up so much more real estate in his gospel than any of the others. You'll also find stories in John's gospel that aren't mentioned elsewhere because John was able to look and to see and to have a different goal than just giving a generic overview of the life of Jesus. The other thing is that John had a very specific audience in mind, just as the other gospel writers did. Matthew wrote to the Jews, Mark he wrote to the Gentiles, Luke he wrote to the Greeks, and for John he's very clear that he writes to all of humanity. And his goal in writing to everyone his goal is that all people would see that the creator God behind the universe actually took on flesh and walked among us. That is his goal. This is why John begins with the statement that he does that's meant to take your mind back to the very, very beginning of the Hebrew scriptures. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John chapter one, verse one. Your mind is supposed to go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He follows the same rhythmic pattern and uses the same wording because he's wanting you to see that that eternal God then, you know, later in chapter 1, he says, took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. His point right from the beginning is that you would see, all of humanity would know that our eternal God took on flesh and came here. And that's what he's trying to convince you of. Because John's goal in writing to us was not just to give us another general overview. He creatively writes in different patterns and rhythms. In fact, in patterns of seven. And I'll happily admit to you that my hobby is not biblical numerology. It's not my hobby or a passion for me. In fact, there are times when I think that some people take this too far in different areas. However, there is a rhythmic theme beyond just John seemingly having some OCD because he puts everything in sevens. It's not just John. There's a rhythmic theme throughout the whole Bible beginning in the Genesis narrative itself where God creates all things in a rhythm of seven days. But all throughout the Old Testament in Leviticus, cleansing was done with the sprinkling of blood seven times. You see this rhythmic pattern. It's Joshua 6 that records them going to take uh, over the city with the, the massive walls of Jericho that surrounded it. And they would march for seven days. And on the seventh day, march seven times with seven trumpets, blasting them seven different times and shouting. And then the walls came down. 
It's even the prophet Daniel who, in his prophetic timeline he gives, gives a 70 weeks of Daniel, 77s is what he, he has his math work out to. It's also something that you find in John's apocalypse. The guy who writes this also writes the book of Revelation. And in Revelation, you have seven letters to seven churches at the beginning of it. You then find that there are seven horns that that later lead to seven seals and seven plagues. Seemingly, everything that happens in Revelation plays out in a pattern and rhythm of sevens. The idea of something that is complete Just like a week is completed in the Genesis narrative, it's a rhythmic pattern throughout it. And in John's gospel, he does this again and again and again. So he does this in the titles that are attributed to Jesus. He gives seven different titles. The Lamb of God, the Son of God, the Rabbi, the King of Israel, the Son of Man, the Messiah, and of course, just Jesus of Nazareth as he was known. But he does it as well in recording Jesus' seven different I am statements found throughout the gospel of John, which would be a fascinating study in and of themselves. But he does it as well in recording seven signs, these miraculous works that Jesus does and accomplishes, seven different signs, though, that he recorded about the life of Jesus. Now, John does not use the Greek word for miracles when writing about these miraculous works that Jesus accomplishes. John instead utilizes this Greek word that we get from Greek to Latin to English that means signs. That's what he says the miracles actually were. Remember, a sign exists to point to something beyond and outside of itself. So track with me. John uses these seven miraculous works of Jesus as signs, as things that point to a greater reality outside of themselves. Because a sign that says turn right or or right curve ahead is not in reference to itself saying that the sign is curved. No, it's pointing your attention ahead to the curve in the road or ahead to a new direction that you need to move in. This sign exists to point beyond itself. And John uses these seven seven wonderful things that Jesus does as signs that point to a greater reality outside of themselves, beyond themselves, pointing specifically to Jesus' deity and kingship. You see, John tells you at the end of the gospel, if you want to flip there, go to chapter 20 real quick. He tells you the reason that he utilizes these seven signs is so that you would believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the Son of God. John chapter 20, look what he says in verse 30. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. These signs are not merely recorded to impress you. They are recorded to convince you, to convince you that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, that he is heaven's promised king and rescuer, and that he's worthy of your trust. So what about this first sign? This is where we begin today in our series. What about this first sign that's chosen by him to highlight for us? It it even tells us that this is not just the first sign that he chooses. This is Jesus' first miracle that he performs. His first public work here is, is recorded for you. This sign is the water being turned to wine at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. So what about it? What is it pointing to? Well, it points in three directions. It's going to point, and you'll see in a moment, backward to Moses and the prophets. It's going to point inward to Jesus' own sorrow, and then it will also point for us forward to his future and to ours. 
But first, let me just reintroduce the story to you a bit. Because it was no small predicament that we're reading of here that the groom and his family failed to provide enough wine for the festivities to continue to go on. And I'll just tell you, this is hard for me to comprehend, although it did leave me kind of craving red wine this week as I found myself reading, like subconsciously it was there. It is hard for us to comprehend, though, and really feel because our culture is so very different from theirs. We have our own social faux pas at weddings, don't we? Ladies, you don't show up wearing a white dress. We all know better. You got family drama in your family, but your family's in the wedding party during photos. The family drama disappears, right? We all know the expectation is nobody talks about it. There might be issues here, but we all stand close together, take our photos, and then just put our heads down and walk away without saying a word. We know how it works. Most of the weddings I've done in the last couple of years, they begin by me asking people not to stand for the entrance of the bride, but before the bride even enters, I as a pastor am typically officiating and being asked to tell people, please put your phones away. You're going to ruin their photos by trying to capture your janky B-grade photo on your cell phone, because as she walks down the aisle, all they're going to see is all of your phones blocking the actual cameraman. We have our own social faux pas that we understand. And if you're throwing the wedding, we get it. We have some cultural things, grids, that we run our decisions through. And really, the cultural grid for us, a cultural value in the West, is efficiency and food. When you're planning a wedding, it's all about being efficient. Like, hey, how quick? We don't want this to drag on, right? Even the venues typically that you would book, you get a narrow time frame. You might get four hours, including your setup and your teardown. You know that this thing needs to move like clockwork. We've got about two hours, people, not just for the ceremony. No, 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 that needs to be in under half an hour. We've got about two hours to have the whole shebang happen and the photos be taken. It's not just efficiency, but the food matters. For us, we come with an expectation. Not only do you not waste my time, but feed me. That is true, isn't it? This is our cultural expectation. And the way that we know that it's true is what do we say when we get in the car and leave? Oh, that was nice. Not too long. Food was good. This is the filter. You're all nodding your heads. This is the filter we run these things through. Now, I'll just tell you, honestly, Lindsay and I, we kind of fumbled on both of these areas. Our ceremony was obscenely long, like embarrassingly so. We sat down this last year on our anniversary. The kids were like, we want to see your wedding pictures. We're like, we can do you one better. Let's watch the video. Man, it was long. It was painful. I was involved in it. I starred in it, technically, like the only thing I've ever starred. And it was terrible. Not only that, but we were so cheap, we dodged a meal and did dessert. We just did an evening wedding and gave people some snacks and cleared out the room pretty quickly. And so I admit, we broke the social norms. But listen, every wedding, regardless of culture, shares in common this very thing. What Genesis first said that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. It's a covenantal term. You see, a wedding, regardless of culture, is about the public proclamation of love, a public promise that's made in front of people. And marriage is not just an expression. Please hear me. Marriage is not just an expression of love. Like, hey, we're here today because we love each other and we're trying to prove it. Marriage is the promise of future love. That's what covenantal love looks like. It's not just the expression of love. It's the promise of future love. Everything else other than that vow and promise is up for grabs and can be distorted and manipulated based on what you desire or what the culture you find yourself in likes. If you are in Austria, your wedding day may begin with a bang, with gunshots going off and firecrackers being set off to wake up the bride early the morning of her big day. And according to folklore, the reason they do this is it's also supposed to frighten off evil spirits who would want to ruin their good day. 
What a wonderful way to start your day. Someone comes in your bedroom and shoots a gun off. When the big day finally arrives in the Republic of Congo, the lovely couple is forbidden from smiling during the ceremony, the photos, or the party after the, celebration, after the celebration, because in that culture, you cracking a smile would demonstrate that you're not taking marriage serious enough. And to crack a smile might mean the parents of the bride or groom would intervene and call the whole thing off. I've been told that if you tie the knot in the Philippines, many couples choose to release, release a pair of white doves as a representation of their harmonious, joyful life that they will undoubtedly share long into the future as they watch the doves leave. Whereas I've been told in Texas, they do the same thing, but they don't let them get far because his and her shotguns take care of the issue. <laughs> this past year, Lindsay and I were a part of a wedding in Switzerland, and it was a unique one because it was a Dutch girl, but it was a guy I had met in Panama who actually was Venezuelan. And it was this mixture of cultures. To this day, I don't know what stuff they made up and what stuff was represented by their cultures. I got up to do the wedding to officiate it, and they both sat on a couch. That's genius. Why don't we let people do this? I mean, it was awkward for me. I felt like I was doing stand-up comedy. I was, yeah, and then, you know, the couple over here. It was so weird, so uncomfortable. But then after the ceremony, because they had some quirky things in that, there was an art project on the table for everyone to work on. And then once the couple came in, there was live entertainment as they did trivia back and forth together. They brought the two families up and played games against each other as entertainment during the meal. And then it finished off with this epic all-night dance party that my wife and I were not emotionally prepared for. We made it till about midnight. They literally partied until the sun came up because that's what you do here. You can't leave. It's almost disrespectful to leave before. Now, I don't know if that's a Dutch tradition or Venezuelan or they made it up on the spot. But in ancient Israel, there are writers who tell us about some of their ancient traditions. For them, they did gather publicly, inviting their families and the whole village. It was a big to-do, and the first thing they do is this public proclamation of love, a promise of future love. There's the exchanging of vows. And then, unfortunately, because it's cringe for us, there was an awkward brief hiatus by the new young couple where they'd exit the, the visible scene and go off to a back room and then they'd rejoin the party and for a week they'd celebrate together. Now people could come and go if they had things to take care of, but for a week people were expecting that the groom's family is providing a meal and the wine for the festivities to continue. That, that was actually your responsibility. If you're throwing the party, you have to make sure that there's food enough to go around and wine enough to keep the party going for an entire week. To run out of wine then was not just a complex problem because they didn't have any liquor stores. It's not like they ran out of wine and said, well, can't somebody just run up the street and grab some? There's just not an option. What they had was all they could probably get their hands on. It wasn't just a complex problem, though. It was a shameful problem in an ancient honor and shame culture. This was a grave misfortune. This would place public shame on the family of the groom, and according to some writers, could be the grounds for the bride's family to take her back into their own home, away from his family and away from his home because of the shame she would be entering right from the beginning of their wedding. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are far worse things that can happen in life, even in that culture, far worse things. But this is a cultural social blunder for sure that would have been the talk of the town for quite some time, it might be that every time people in the community saw you, they, they would comment on, oh, yeah, you're the guy who was too cheap to buy enough or didn't plan well and left the rest of us hanging. That's how you would be seen. And in an honor-shame culture, that mattered. Jesus' mother, aware of all of this and the problem of the wine shortage, 
While word was seemingly yet to spread throughout the wine party, or throughout the wedding party, which had turned into a wine party because they'd already drank it all, Mary's response to the shortage of wine provides you an answer to the annual question that comes up every year at Christmas of, Mary, did you know? She knew. An angel had told her, and here she's going to Jesus expecting a miracle, as the prophets had foretold that Messiah would be capable of doing that he could do the miraculous. The previous chapter tells you that Jesus began a career shift where he's moving out of the carpentry shop, out of the family business, and he selects disciples, which was the first act of a rabbi when he took the mantle of a teacher and a leader in a community. And so Jesus has had a career shift. She knows that. And so she goes now, not just to her son, but really to the Messiah, asking him if he can intervene and do anything. If you can do miracles, then what can you make happen? This was the first sign that John records for us, not just Jesus' first miracle, and it's meant to point beyond itself. What does it point to? It first points us backward. It points us backward towards Moses and the prophets. You see, before Jesus would ever turn water into wine, you might remember, your mind has probably already gone there, Moses arrived on the pages of the Exodus story where he turned water into blood. In order for the people of God to be delivered from their captivity, God sent Moses to perform a series of miraculous signs before Pharaoh in Egypt. Remember that those signs were performed in an attempt to convince Pharaoh. They weren't just signs that served their own purpose. They were pointing to the reality that God was real and powerful and capable and that his people should be released to go and serve him. They were signs to demonstrate to Pharaoh that you need to yield to this. And here is Jesus performing his very first miraculous sign that was foreshadowed in Moses. And that is also meant to convince you and I of the reality of his presence and power and that we as his people ought to be released and delivered by him to serve and follow him. You see, this sign is really meant to instantly take your mind back to Moses and the story of him delivering his people from bondage in Egypt. And there's two clues in the story that make this super clear. One is the jars, pointing our attention to Moses, and then also the wine. Those two things. Think with me first about the jars. For many, or I'm sorry, for Mary to tell us here that the wedding guests have burned through the bridegroom's stockpile of wine leaves us confident that around the property of the celebration, that was being held that day for the wedding or that week for the wedding, there were undoubtedly, there would have been so many empty wine vats and wine skins. These wine skins are are what the grape juice would be poured into so that as it fermented, the skins could expand and contract with it so it wouldn't burst or crack and spill out. If they've done with all, or have gone through all the wine, then undoubtedly the recycling bins are overflowing, right? So it's a peculiar move and an intentional move by Jesus, not an oversight, to bypass the vessels that are made for wine in favor of these large traditional 16 to 27 gallon is what the math works out to when you try to do it in gallons from the measurements that they give. These massive jars that were used for, think about this, ceremonial washing. These jars were filled with water that were used to wash your hands before and after each time you ate. 
every time you entered and exited the, the facility or the open square where this big feast was happening, you'd wash your hands again and again and again, just as the jars had this single purpose to hold the water that you would need to cleanse yourself. The process of ceremonial washing had a single purpose to it. It was to demonstrate to you and to other people that you were perpetually unclean and constantly needing cleansing. All throughout the day, every time you went to reach for something to eat, ah, give me a moment, I've got to go wash, I'm not clean. You come back like a surgeon, sit down, now I'm good. As soon as you finish, I'm unclean, you're washing again. You leave the, the premises for a few minutes to come back, I wash again. It's this perpetual reminder constantly throughout the day, all day long, every day, that you are unclean. So think about this. The lesson then of the water to wine takes on symbolic imagery to express this new thing that Jesus is doing. In his book, The Seven Signs, the author Anthony Salvaggio compares Jesus' intentional use of the vessels of purification in this story to the destruction of the Berlin Wall. When the wall came down, it stated that it, both of these things, they communicated something, that it was the end of an era and of a previous regime, and that a new era was beginning. What the ceremonial law could not do was cleanse the heart of an individual. It, it could not clean them from the inside out. It, it may wash the external clean, but the law and its demands to wash and cleanse yourself brought no internal transformation. That's why you kept having to go back to cleanse yourself yet again. The image is that what the law could not do in cleansing us on the inside, the gospel of Jesus and his grace would do. What Jesus would provide for us would be capable of doing by transforming our hearts and placing joy inside of them. You see, the law is a burden. That's all that we feel is the weight and burden of pressure. But what it was replaced with in that moment was the source of joy. <clears throat> That's what wine is a picture of in your Bible. In the Old Testament, it says that it is a gift that gladdens the heart of men in Psalm 104. That's what wine is. Sorry, I don't need wine right now, but I need something. Those jars of water <clears throat> for cleansing of the hands were present because people constantly needed to wash before and, before and after every time they ate anything. And the fact that it was this perpetual washing several times throughout the day, it said something very clearly to the people. It told them that their issue was something that could not be resolved simply with an extra washing that would take care of it completely. What they needed was an internal cleansing and transformation to take place. You see, the cleansing of their hands was not just because they got dirt or a smidgen of mud on them. It's because they themselves were the source of uncleanness. It's not just what they touched. The issue is that it's who they were. That's why they're constantly dipping their hands in to wash them off. Because they know it's not just about what's outside of us. It's what's inside of us that defiles us and makes us unclean and therefore unfit in the presence of God. This is what this is telling you. And if that is true, then what they needed cleansing wasn't just what they picked up from the world around them. It was what was emanating from their very souls. It was who they were. The washings were constant and served as a reminder that they were perpetually unclean and needing something more than just water from a jar to cleanse and transform them, making the unclean finally once and for all clean. 
That water reminded them of their sin and shame and their separation from a holy God. To then be replaced with wine was a statement that there was a deep internal work that Jesus was going to do to replace sin and shame with joy and celebration. Think of that. The lesson here is that Jesus will replace sin and shame. What we feel, what others see about us, and what we know to be true of ourselves, that he will replace sin and shame with joy and celebration. And by doing so, in the story, Jesus created a whole new problem, didn't he? Think about it. What's the new problem? There's no more water to wash your hands with. They can no longer wash themselves because he's removed the shameful reminder of their uncleanness, the water in the jars, and instead he replaced it with joy. The normal thing was not to fill these jars made for ceremonial hand washings with wine. The normal thing to do would have been to refill the empty wine jars and wineskins that would have been strewn all around the gathering. If they'd consumed quite a bit of wine, then they would have had lots of options. Oh, the normal thing to do would have been to pick up those empty wine vats and wineskins and refill them. This was a peculiar and an intentional move here by Jesus that was clearly a part of the sign that John is saying it is. Jesus choosing to post a sign for us, pointing to a greater reality outside of and beyond itself. I heard one of my friends once reference this and this story, and he said, well, what if you came to church and we ran out of coffee and we said not to worry, we refilled our baptismal with coffee? And if they offered you refill, I mean, their baptismal, it represents a place of cleansing. Now, that water isn't special. It doesn't wash them clean, but it's the celebration of what Christ has done to wash them clean. So it's a, it's a weird repurposing of it. It's also just gross. Like literally people, it, it's a gross, this is a weird move, Jesus. People are dipping their arms in that bad boy and now you're putting wine in it like, or putting more water in and miraculously turning it to wine. To repurpose it, just like with the baptismal, would be pretty gross and would communicate that we really believe we no longer have need of it. That's Jesus' statement here, that you don't need this because what I give is going to free you and give you joy. You see, the law and its mandates for washing were statements to the people that they were unclean and therefore unfit for the presence of God. Jesus' actions, therefore, here are signifying that there's a whole new era beginning where man will no longer need a reminder of their uncleanness, where man will no longer be unfit for the presence of God. A new era has come because a new king has arrived. But how would he do it? How would he make them clean if now they can't wash themselves? Well, the sign is meant, remember, to take your mind back to Moses, not just to the jars, but also to the wine, because that is how he would do it. In John chapter 1, in verse 17, it makes the comment that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Right from the beginning of John's gospel, he brings Moses into frame to stand next to Jesus. And now again, in the first of the seven signs, where just as Jesus turned the the water blood red, Moses has done the very same thing. For Jesus, he turned it into wine, a sign of joy. But for Moses, he turned it into blood, a sign of judgment. You see, the sign is about far more than Jesus saving a family from public shame and embarrassment. It's far more than Jesus being the ultimate party guest who's got a great party trick to show you. It's bigger than even just a statement that God cares about weddings and marriages. The story is about Moses and the law's inability to give us life or to truly cleanse any individual from the inside out. And it's telling you with clarity that Jesus believes that he has the ability to do what the law could not that he could do the very thing that the law was powerless to do, that he could bring joy and new life from the inside out that would spring out of you. 
In Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, it says it this way. It says, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to his Spirit. You see, the sign is meant to point you back first to Moses, but hey, a second thing, real quick. It points you inward. It allows you a view inside of Jesus' own heart. It points you inward to his sorrow. It's really fascinating to me that Jesus' first miracle wasn't feeding the hungry, nor was it healing the lame. And those are important things, but your first sign makes a statement. And those are things that even were important to Jesus because they are things that Jesus did. But here, his first sign publicly would be a choice to demonstrate that he had come to cover shame and replace it with joy. And that's beautiful to me. Bigger than just filling stomachs or making a body whole, he came not to do a small thing, but to cover shame and replace it with joy. I'll tell you, though, it's, it's not just fascinating to me that he does this. It's a bit troubling to me, Jesus' interaction with his own mom. Maybe it stood out to you as we read through it, because it almost seems a bit harsh or cold the way that he responds. Now, the truth is, we can't be certain that we have the whole conversation recorded for us here. In fact, I think it's safe to assume that more conversation actually happened, because she's confident by the end of Jesus' few words with her that Jesus is going to do something and tells the servants, whatever he says, go do it. So maybe there was more that was said. But Jesus' response to his mother does seem to lack the warmth that we become accustomed to as we read his story. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, it says that as Jesus was growing up, that he was respectful to his parents, that he was subject to them, that he obeyed them. And Mary would not be the only woman that he would address this way with this title that kind of seems cold to us. And although that softens the blow for me, knowing that this is how he spoke to women, it almost makes it worse to me that he's treating his mother as he would any other woman when she had such a significant role in his life. But know this, Jesus was never seen as irritable, not even in the worst of moments. When he was being tortured to death, you remember, he cried out, Father, forgive them. When he had every excuse to be irritable, he wasn't. In fact, in that very moment, he addresses Mary by the same title. Remember, he says, woman, behold your son, looking at John, and son, behold your mother, asking John to do for him what he could no longer do for himself, to care for his mother's well-being. It's not as harsh and cold as maybe it comes off. One commentator, F.F. F. Bruce, he highlighted this. He says, as he warned, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, as he warned about how easy it would be to overlook and miss the point of Jesus choosing to use this term, here's what he writes. He says, and I quote, which is that, here's what he's warning against, which is that his mother is precisely what he did not call her. That was a terrible delivery of a quote. Let me explain that to you. What F.F. Bruce pointed out is that you are supposed to not get caught up on, wow, it seems a little cold. What you're supposed to get caught up on why is why did he not call her mom in that moment? Why was she merely a woman? Why the distinction? It's something Augustine, the early church father, many, many centuries ago, he wrote about. He said it this way. Although the evangelist himself, he's talking about John the author, mentions Jesus' mother by her very name, Jesus, nevertheless, addresses her with the words, woman, what have I to do with you? But here he is not pushing her away from himself since he had received flesh from her. Rather, his purpose is to convey the conception of his divinity, which is especially appropriate at this time when he is about to change water to wine. This is the divinity that made the woman, that gave life to Mary, rather than the humanity that was made inside of her speaking. 
You see, Jesus in this moment, he's mindful of his purpose, and he's communicating a realignment of priorities that took place, remember, when he launched his public ministry just a chapter before, where now he's taking orders, not from the mother and father of the home he grew up in, but now he's taking orders, he makes it very clear later in John's gospel, from his father who is in heaven. He said, the very things I do, I do because he's told me to do them. You see, this is the first of Jesus' signs, and it points us inwardly towards Jesus' own sorrow. Now, is it a reach to say that Jesus was mindful of his own suffering and death amidst all the celebration of the wedding festivities? Well, I don't think it is because Jesus himself mentions his death and sorrow, demonstrating to us that it was precisely what was on his mind in this moment. In verse four, he says, woman, do you not know that my hour, my hour has not yet come, my hour, seven times, no shocker, right? In, in John's gospel, he records Jesus saying, my hour. Five of them, he says that my hour is not here. Two of them, he shifts gears and says that it has finally arrived. And he makes it clear to us, removes all of our doubts, what he means when he talks about his hour in those moments. The sixth of the seven times is recorded in John 16, while Jesus is seated with his disciples on the night that he would be betrayed. He says it this way. He says, indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come that you will be scattered each to your own and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He'll say it one final time, speaking of his hour. In the very next verse, chapter 17, verse 1, it says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. When Jesus finished this prayer, which lasts all of chapter 17, chapter 18, verse 1 tells you that he arose from the table and began his walk to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he would not hide from death. He would go to pray and prepare himself for it. And the shadow of the cross would loom over that garden. If you look at the mention or the verses that mention his hour, it's very clear that Jesus is speaking of his death and the glory of the Father. For the Father was glorified in his death and resurrection because it would be the way that the Father would bring many more sons to glory with him forever. Jesus here says, though, it's not the time. In fact, when he does the miracle, it's largely done in private. No one even knows really what's happened. When the conversation happens between the master of the feast and the bridegroom, he, they're even confused about how this even came together. Remember, he credits him like, you did a weird move. You saved the best wine for last. People have had enough to drink. You could have given them the cheap stuff, and they wouldn't have even noticed or batted an eye, but you've done it in reverse order. They don't know who to credit for the decision, much less for the presence of the wine. In verse 4, Jesus had said, woman... What does this concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You see, in that moment, we're given a glimpse into his mind and heart, and it shows you with clarity that he was mindful of his own suffering and sorrow. You know, I bet that at a wedding ceremony, we all share the same moment in common that is our favorite moment of the wedding. It's when the bride walks down the aisle. However, we'd probably divide the room if we said, but how many of you watched the bride and how many of you watched the groom? So how many are team bride? How many are team groom? How many try to pull off both? Because it's a very sweet thing, right, to watch not just the bride enter, and it's such a beautiful moment, but also to look at a groom and to be allowed to be a part of his very first glimpse of his bride, a day and a moment he too is anticipated. It's beautiful. 
For me in officiating, I get a third perspective in view. I get to see those up close and personal, which is a gift, but I also get to look out and sometimes I see something else. Yes, lots of joy for sure, but sometimes just a tinge of pain. You know, at a wedding for some people, a wedding isn't just a place of joy. Sometimes a wedding is a point of pain. It might be that sitting in a wedding for some is a reminder of a broken family and home that they grew up in. For others, it's a reminder of the spouse that they were forced to bury. For some, it unearths their wound and insecurity or or maybe their fear that their day will not come. Seemingly, Jesus is having a moment like this because we've all seen it where a wedding can create joy in some, where it creates a tinge of sorrow, a pain point for others. And Jesus seems to be having that very same moment where everyone around him is celebrating and apparently drinking a lot of wine when Mary comes and finds Jesus preoccupied with something else. He's not in a bad mood. He does seemingly be found. He is found in this somber mood, though. In this moment, Mary's concern was about the joy of the celebration at the wedding coming to an end, which would be a tragedy, and Jesus seems to have his mind elsewhere. And when we get a glimpse into his mind, we get a glimpse when he says, my hour has not come. We find that Jesus is preoccupied with his own death. But why? Why in the world would his mind be on his death? Because the truth is, he's thinking about his own wedding. If you've never been married and you're at a wedding, that's what you're doing. But for Jesus to receive his bride meant he first had to embrace a cross. All of the Bible talked about it, the great marriage of God with his people. It's beautiful imagery all throughout the Bible. But in this moment, theologian Edmund Clowney, he said it this way. He said, Jesus sat amidst all the joy, sipping on the coming sorrow, so that today we can sit amidst all this world's sorrows, sipping on the coming joy. For Jesus, he felt a tinge of pain in this moment. The sign, it points us inward to recognize that Jesus thought of his own wedding day, but knew the reality of what it would cost him to receive and welcome a bride in heaven and to have them sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb. He's thinking of his hour that would come and what it would cost him. But there's a third and final thing very quickly that that we are to look at, that this sign is meant to point us towards, and that's that we look forward not just to his future, but also to ours, to his and ours shared together. Again, quoting Augustine, he says, is it any wonder that he who came to that house for a wedding came to this world for his own? That's what the storyline of the Bible is really about. One day, Jesus will not be the guest at a wedding. He will be the one who is honored and celebrated as the groom. It will be his own wedding feast, but it will not come until after his sorrow and suffering until after his hour has come. The whole of the Bible, it explains our life with God poetically as being a wedding feast. Just as God created man in his own image, God created a marriage in the image of his intended union with creation, with humanity. The prophets wrote often about Israel being the bride of God, and then Jesus comes and shocks everyone when they come and complain to him and say, John the Baptist's disciples, they fast a lot and pray. Why don't yours? Remember what he said? It's stunning when you think about it. He says, why would they fast when the bridegroom is present with them? He was saying that all the poetic imagery of the Old Testament about the people of God being the bride of God, that he is now saying, and I am the bridegroom humanity is waiting to be connected to, to be united with. And at the end of the book, when you fast forward to Revelation chapter 21, Jesus is depicted as the bridegroom finally receiving his bride. 
And it's when we see him, not just as a triumphant lion, but remember, we see him as a lamb who was slain because his suffering and sacrifice was the only way to make his bride ready to come and to meet him and celebrate with him where pleasures are forevermore. Author Timothy Keller, he put it this way. He says, here's Mary saying, please bring joy to the wedding feast. And if he, Jesus, is thinking about his own wedding, this is what he must be saying in his own heart. Oh, mother, if I'm going to bring joy to my wedding feast, if I'm going to fall into the arms of my bride first, I'm going to have to go through the hour. First, I'm going to have to go to the cross and suffer and die. And I believe it is absolutely what Jesus was thinking about in that moment. He's thinking about that day of his suffering. It's on his mind, his hour as he referred to it. And it's even evidence in his choice to put the wine in the jars for purification that were to wash and cleanse the guests from their uncleanness before they could enter the wedding feast and celebrate. For us to enter the grand wedding feast, the wedding feast of all, the marriage supper of the Lamb, we first have to be cleansed by what only Jesus provides. And it would be the wine, which is not weird. Think about it. Because if you fast forward to the end of Jesus' life, to where he twice speaks lifting a vessel of wine, or at least using the imagery, one happens in Gethsemane where he cries out and says, take this cup from me. A cup in the Old Testament is a, a picture of God's wrath being poured out. Take this from me, though, he says, I don't want to drink of it. And yet he drinks deeply of it, and because of it, we're spared from the, the wrath and the justice and judgment of God because it was poured out on Christ instead. But earlier that same night is the other time that Jesus will again speak of wine in a glass, lifting a vessel of wine. It's when he sat around a table with his disciples and he said, take and drink the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood, he said. But then he said, but I will not drink of it with you until we are together in the age to come at the celebration of his own wedding is what he's referencing. He would not drink it until he first drank of the wrath and of the judgment of God. And then the sorrow of that cup would be transformed to joy that we could all drink together at a future kingdom, at a future wedding celebration. He drank the sorrow instead of us and transforms it to joy for us so that we no longer have to sip on sorrow. We instead can drink deeply of joy with Christ. You see, in Egypt, Moses, he turned the water to blood and it brought sorrow and judgment. But in, in Cana at Galilee, Jesus turned the water to wine and it brought rejoicing and celebration. In both cases, though, there would not be deliverance until there was first the death of a firstborn. Jesus would not just wash us clean with water that filled these pots. Jesus would wash us clean with his blood, his own blood, so that the judgment of God would pass over us as he, the Lamb of God, as John calls him, who would take away the sin of the world, would give his life to take away our sin. Do you see the picture here? 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says it this way. It says that the blood of Jesus, it cleanses us from all of our sins. Oh, think of the night that Jesus was betrayed, seated there with his friends, some of who were present in this moment at the wedding feast in Cana, but all they sat, or as they all sat around that future table, he would lift the vessel of wine and say, this wine is a picture of that new covenant of my blood that shed for the remission of your sins. And you can't help but wonder, did their minds go back to this moment? 
to Jesus turning the water that was required for us to try our best to wash ourselves, him turning it into wine, and now he's saying, the thing that'll fill your heart with joy is the blood that I will shed for you and the life that I am purchasing for you. Oh, do you see your way to the wedding feast in the future kingdom into the fullness of joy? The way is only found in the cleansing blood of Jesus. You can close your Bible. What an introduction to the ministry of Jesus. What an introduction that shows us what the life of Jesus is all about. That he not only rescues a couple from shame, well, the words of the fourth century theologian Ephraim of Syria, they ring true that he who did not change the stones changed here the water in Cana. Remember, these signs are, are miracles with a message because they point beyond themselves to Jesus and serve as proof texts of his true identity. And I love that the very first of the signs serves to point us to Jesus' true identity, and it also tells us, in the words of theologian Adrian Rogers, that Jesus is God's answer to man's disappointment. What an introduction to the life and ministry of Jesus. What an introduction that shows us what life with Jesus is all about, a freedom from shame and from sin. It's showing us that he is the one who can who can cleanse us from sin and make the unclean clean once and for all so that they no longer even need the water to wash themselves again. Not just washing them from the outside. No, that's not what he would do. He would transform hearts from the inside out. You see, wine is not to wash your hands. Wine is to put joy in your heart. What an introduction even to life with Jesus as a life marked by joy, a life that can be free of shame and of sin, a life that finds those things replaced with joy and celebration. We don't just wait for that joy and celebration in our future. It starts now in our lives, in the place where Jesus is king. We already get a taste of his kingdom. We're already invited into the celebration and the freedom from shame that we also desperately want and need. It's interesting that it tells you that the disciples believed at the end of this. I mean, sure they did, but the reason they followed in the chapter before, it says, was because they believed. So now it tells us twice. Listen, it's telling us here that, that the disciples, their belief was not just in thinking, their belief now was in practice. That They began to trust Jesus in a new way. When they saw what Jesus did and maybe even began to pick up on some of the signage and what it was pointing to, my friends, this story is not just here to impress you. It's here to convince you that Jesus is worth trusting, that Jesus alone provides a washing and a covering, that Jesus alone is a source of unending joy. So why don't you pray with me, and then let's give thanks together. So Father, we thank you for the beautiful gift of not just wine at a feast, but the sign, how this points us ahead to something far greater than a momentary celebration. Jesus, it points us ahead to an eternity with you, where you welcome us only because you have done all for us that would need to be done, that we could never do. Jesus, you would go to a cross and suffer the judgment and justice of God. You being treated as an enemy so that we could be received as sons. Jesus, we thank you and we celebrate you right now. Thank you, Jesus.
Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.